Good morning. I'm glad you guys are all here on this cold fall morning. We are. I know it's great, isn't it? We had fake summer for a little bit, and now it's fall again. Now you're justified in drinking all the pumpkin spice all over again. <laughs> um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. Matthew chapter 25. We're in between the series right now. Um, at the end, after uh, Thanksgiving, we're going to enter into an Advent series. Um, but right now we're kind of in between the series and we're preparing for communion today. So as we prepare to receive communion, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start reading in verse 1. It says this, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's pray. God, as we look to your word to prepare our hearts for communion, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that your word would form us, that you would teach us what it means to keep watch. Whatever is my ideas or my perspective or expectation, let it be revealed so it can be rejected. But what is from you and faithful to your word, let it plant itself deeply in our hearts that we would be formed to your likeness. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Um, some of you might not know this. I did, uh, I did martial arts for like 12 years, which means that I'm super intimidating. So I don't know if you can tell or not, but I'm a pretty intimidating guy. Uh, I'm just kidding. It just means that I can break fake boards. Um, or at least I could like 15 years ago. Um, I took martial arts because my dad was a professional kickboxer and martial artist before he became a pastor. So everywhere that we lived, he would teach martial arts. So I just kind of took it because I was in his house, right? I was never terribly great at it, um, but I took it. Um, And yes, that does mean my dad can beat up your dad just in case you're wondering. Um, My dad is the most intimidating person I've ever met. He is 72 and is in better physical condition than I have ever been or will ever be in my entire life. Um, But So I took martial arts growing up, and if you're familiar with martial arts, you know that sometimes you compete. One of the things that you'll do is travel and go to tournaments. So we would do that on occasion a couple times a year. And usually a martial arts tournament is really based on skill. 
It's not so much based on like being tough or taking a punch. It's more based on being quick and being able to execute your moves properly. So it's point sparring or point fighting is what it often is. And the idea is just to be able to make contact to get through someone else's guard and you score a point. So it's really just showing that you are skilled at the moves, not so much that you can defend yourself in a fight. Um, But there were some guys in North Carolina outside of Charlotte who decided that we needed to make sure these kids were tough. (laughs) So they came up with this idea for a tournament that they called the Bushido Heart of the Warrior Tournament, which sounds very cool, doesn't it? Um, And we competed. So one year we went to compete in the Bushido Heart of the Warrior Tournament, which Bushido is a word about samurai values of honor, which is a funny thing for a bunch of guys with rat tails from Cleveland County, North Carolina to call themselves. (laughs) Um, But anyway, um, we went to the Bushido Heart of the Warrior Tournament, and I got a trophy. I won. And that trophy, it's super cool. It looks bronze on top. It's definitely just plastic dipped in something, but it looks bronze. And it says, winner of the Bushido Heart of the Warrior Tournament. If you were to see that trophy, which I think it's in my parents' attic, if you were to see that trophy, be super impressive. Now, here's what that tournament was. And once again, they, they decided to make sure that we were still tough, right? So the idea of this tournament wasn't that you would score points, but they would pick someone that was approximately the same size as you, approximately the same age, and approximately the same skill level as you, And you would go full contact five rounds. And the idea of the tournament was that if you could go five rounds and not, like, and not bail out, if you could just dish it out and take it for five rounds, then you got a trophy because you were tough, right? So that was the tournament I did. They found someone, I was about 15, they found someone approximately my size, approximately my skill level, um, and we started fighting. And what I want to tell you is that for five rounds, I was barely standing up. I got a trophy because I didn't quit, but my perspective of that tournament was that I just got knocked around. For five whole rounds. There are two memories that I will never forget from that tournament. One is I was like up against the boundary. We didn't have ropes. It wasn't that cool. It was just a boundary. I was up against the boundary. And this guy throws a spinning back fist, which sounds cool and it is cool. It's when you spin around like this and you hit with the back of your hand. He threw that punch so fast and hard it hit me right here in the side of the neck. It popped and I heard the crowd go, ooh. And that is not what you want to hear when the other guy throws a punch (laughs) when you're in a tournament. And the other thing that I remember is, once again, being backed up against the boundary, trying really hard not to get knocked over or pushed out of the boundary, is I remember him throwing a flying, spinning back heel kick, which, once again, is exactly as cool as it sounds. It is a really cool kick. It's when you spin around, so you, you kick with your back foot, you spin around, jump up in the air, and you spin backwards, and your heel swings and makes the kick. It's so cool. And I remember standing there with my guard up thinking, oh, man, that's a cool kick. <laughs> and then it hit me, and it hurt. It hurt a lot. And I got to the end of that tournament, and I just, like, as soon as we shook hands and bowed and all the stuff you're supposed to do in a martial arts tournament, I just sat down and tried to catch my breath and thank the Lord that it was over. 
And multiple people came up to me afterwards, and they were like, man, you guys were going toe-to-toe. It was neck and neck there. And I was like, were you watching the fight I was in? Because that wasn't neck and neck. Um, but multiple people came up, and they were like, man, you guys, you guys were just going, like you were going back and forth. You know, it really looked like you were evenly matched. And I was absolutely shocked by that. Because it's interesting how your perspective changes when you're in it versus when you're watching it. I heard a quote from a missionary a few years ago. I think I've referenced it before. But he said, the greatest moments of faith in your life, the greatest seasons of faith, don't feel like faith in the moment. You don't know that they were the greatest moments of faith until they're over. Because in the moment, it felt like you were just hanging on. It felt like you were just doing everything you can to stick it out. But oftentimes, the greatest moments of faith are the moments where you just don't quit. They're not the moments where there's some miracle, where there's some transcendental experience. They're the moments where you kept doing what you knew was right because you knew it was right, and that was enough. Now, this parable that we read is usually interpreted as about the end times, the second coming of Jesus, when he makes everything right. In fact, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 seem to be this whole section about Jesus' second coming, and he talks about signs of the times and changing seasons, and just for the record, scholars have debated for as long as there have been scholars and a Bible to debate, and they don't agree on that. We don't know what the signs are, what they mean. There's not uniform understanding on that. Some scholars think that in Matthew 24, before these verses, Jesus was directly referencing the fall of Jerusalem. Um, Some scholars don't. It's reasonable to assume that when Jesus was talking in these parables about the coming of the Messiah and using all of these analogies in this parable, it's the bridegroom is analogous to Jesus coming. It's reasonable to assume that he was talking in a dual purpose, that he was both talking about his coming as Savior and his second coming, and how the people of God live prepared in the waiting for the things that are coming. So they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. We are waiting for the second coming, for Jesus to come back in the resurrection and everything being made right. That's what we're waiting for. It's an interesting time in our history to be talking about the end times, because if you're like me, your social media has just been blowing up lately with things about end times and interpretation and what could mean what, where, and when. Which, just for the record, I didn't pick this passage specifically. This just happened to be the lectionary reading for the week, which is what we're preaching on today. When we're talking about the end times, the second coming of Jesus, just that topic can be stressful, can feel like a lot of pressure, can feel like a lot to try to figure out, especially when you read a passage that says something like, so keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. When you read something that talks about being prepared for the second coming of Jesus. When we talk about the second coming of Jesus, there are two ditches that we can easily steer into. As we prepare for communion, I want to just identify this. I don't want this to be terribly heavy because we're going to receive 
the body and blood of Christ this morning and the comfort of Jesus, but we need to acknowledge the dangers in what we're talking about. And there are two ditches. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how you can imagine if you're going to a destination, there are ditches on each side of the road you can steer into. And one of those ditches is probably the ditch of the ones called foolish in this story. And it's where we just imagine that what we're doing in this life doesn't really matter. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We know he is coming back. We know that we're saved. So we don't worry too much about preparation or this life or how we interact with people in this world. We don't put a lot of effort into our lives because we imagine that it's eternity that matters and not really this life that matters. So we don't really prepare at all. We don't prioritize the things of God. We believe the right things. We more or less don't we more or less follow the rules. We make sure we're not doing the things that we know to be wrong, but we don't really put a lot of time and energy into our lives other than living within the Christian boundaries. We don't live as if our king is coming. We live as if someday he'll come and that's what matters. We don't live as what Paul would call ambassadors of reconciliation, making the way for his kingdom in this world. We live as if someday we get to escape. Or we live as if this life is just eat, drink, and be merry because someday we'll leave. That's one of the ditches where we don't really notice, we don't really prepare, we don't really live as if this life matters very much. So the record, that's extremely common in our world today, where the life of following Jesus is not the life of obeying our king, but is a life of just believing something about the afterlife or believing something about the future that does not necessarily affect the priorities or decisions that we make today. But there's another ditch that's easy for us to steer into. And it's one of being so focused on the future that we miss the present. Where we spend so much time trying to figure out the signs and interpret what's going on in the world around us and know when and how and what this means about his coming that we miss the living in his kingdom that is coming. You see what I mean? Oftentimes, especially in our current cultural moment, one of our temptations is for our eyes to be on the end, for our eyes to be on figuring out the puzzle of what's going on in the world today rather than our eyes being on Jesus and on what he's doing in our midst. It's not preparation by living in his way, but it's preparation by figuring it out. And I just want to tell you today that the one thing we do know about the end times, there's much, in fact, most of it we don't know. The one thing we do know is that it's not a puzzle that you can solve and that we do not know the day or the hour and that it's coming like a thief in a night, so you're not going to know it. (laughs) Those are the things that we definitely do know. If your theology about the end causes you anxiety or fear 
or trepidation, then your theology in the, about the end is not based in the character of God, who is loving and whom perfect love casts out fear. It's interesting, in this passage, this whole section is talking about the, the end times. And one, one of the things that you notice in each parable, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. Right after this, he tells the parable of the talents. And right after that, he tells what we know is the parable or the story of the sheep and the goats. And when you read each of these parables, Jesus talks about people who are prepared, who are doing the right thing while they're awaiting the return of their master or their king. And in each time, what you notice is that the people doing the right thing are not doing anything terribly complicated. They're actually doing the most obvious thing. Because if you were waiting for someone and you knew you needed a lamp that was burning the whole time and you knew it might be a long time before they come, what would you do? You'd bring extra oil. That's not a secret. That's not a mystery. That's not a code to unlock. That's just doing the thing that you know to be right. In the next parable, there's the story of the master who leaves money with his servants, and he leaves the money to be stewarded, and one of them invests it well and doubles it, and another one invests it well and doubles it, and the other one gets so scared, he digs a hole and puts it in in the hole so he doesn't lose any. But we would all know that if you were left responsible for money, and you were left with the responsibility to invest it well, that digging a hole is not the right thing to do, right? Right? That being distracted and not doing anything, not preparing at all, like the foolish virgins, or being afraid, like the servant, that those are not the right response of preparation. Actually, the right response is just doing the right thing, the not terribly complicated right thing that's in front of us. And then interestingly enough, at the end of the story, at the end of Matthew 25, as Jesus kind of concludes his conversation about the end times, we have this story of Jesus talking about when he comes back and in the time of judgment, him separating the sheep from the goats. And he says, the righteous are the sheep, the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. And when he talks about the things that he calls righteousness, it's interesting because the righteous people are surprised that they were righteous. He says, you are the righteous because you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You welcomed me in when I was a stranger. You visited me in my, in, when I was in prison. And the righteous say, when did we do that? And he says, well, what you did to the least of these, you also did to me. Because this is what it means to be prepared for the coming kingdom of God. It means to live as if his kingdom is now. This is what it means to live prepared. It doesn't mean to treat the Bible like national treasure and try to find the secret code on the back of the map. It means to live as if the values of the kingdom of God are expected for us now. We welcome the coming king by preparing a kingdom for him. So that when he comes, it's already a little bit like what he's bringing with him. We prepare for the coming king by living as if he's still our king, even though he's not physically here. And so many of us, we fall into one of these ditches of just acting like he's not our king at all, and like we don't have anything to worry about until the end, until after death, or by living in fear as if there's something that we've got to figure out. 
But living in preparation is just living in his value, living in his ethic. How do you prepare? How do you keep watch? You forgive your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You clothe the poor. You feed the hungry. You visit the prisoner. You keep doing it. Because it's not based on the results or the experience. It's based on faithfulness to the king. And today as we prepare for communion, we're going to receive the body of Jesus. The body and blood of Christ. And as we do, we should remember that until Jesus comes back, we are his body on this earth. As we receive his body, we are his body. So we prepare for his coming by showing the world what he's like in our lives. We prepare for his coming by embodying his way in this world. So as we come to communion today, there might be some of us who come to communion with conviction because you realize that you've been living as if following Jesus is just something you believe about the end times and that it doesn't really affect your life today. Maybe some of you are coming to communion receiving peace because you've been afraid or anxious about everything going on in the world today and anxious about whether you're reading the signs correctly. And listen, there are things to be anxious about in the world today, but it's not about whether we're figuring out the signs right. We can cast those cares on Christ as well. But I think for a lot of us, maybe you're coming to communion today and you have a tendency towards anxiety and pressure and feeling like your life isn't really making a difference and feeling like you're not living prepared, feeling like you're missing something. And what you need to know is that if you are, to the best of your ability, not in perfection, embodying the way of Jesus, then you are living prepared. And it might not feel like in this moment that it's making any sort of difference. But the greatest moments of faith are not the moments where it feels like it makes a difference. They're the moments where we keep doing it anyway. They're the moments where you keep praying for that person even though you haven't seen any change. They're the moments where you keep forgiving your enemies even though they haven't done anything to change their actions. There's moments where you keep feeding the hungry even though you see that we're never, you can't imagine a world where we fix the problem of hunger. They're where you keep standing up for justice even though injustice keeps winning. This is how we live prepared. And maybe today you need to know that in this moment, it doesn't feel like anything's working Maybe you're still praying even though you haven't felt the spirit of God in prayer in a long time. Maybe you're continuing to sing truth even though you haven't felt the presence of God in worship in years. Maybe you're continuing to show up and live faithful to Jesus even though you've got more questions than answers in your life and more doubts than you have faith on most days. But you just keep showing up and keep doing it. That is the moment of faith when you keep going even when it doesn't feel right. So we live prepared for our coming king by embodying his way, by continuing to embody his way, even though we know we will not have victory until he comes. We continue to love and serve. We continue to go to juvie even when no teenagers show up. 
because continuing to go is what matters. The results aren't. We keep forgiving even when the relationship never mends because doing the work is what matters. The results are in his hands. We keep praying. We keep making peace. We keep living in the ways of our king until our king comes and brings his way to the world. So as we prepare for communion, uh, Jack's going to come up and he's going to play just a little bit. Um, And I want to just invite you to take a few minutes, about three minutes, and just consider what the invitation is for you as you come to communion. You can journal this uh, on your phone, in your mind, in, in a journal if you would like. But just ask the question with the Lord. Are you coming to communion being invited to start living like your life matters? This life matters? Are you coming to communion today to receive peace and to lay your fears down and your anxieties down? To lay down the things you don't know and can't know? Are you coming to communion today to receive the body of Christ telling you to keep going, to keep living, to keep embodying his way, that the results are in his hands, not yours? Let's consider how we're coming to communion. In just a few moments, we will come to the table together. Let me pray for us and we'll consider. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we can come to the table to receive your body, receive your blood as a reminder of your faithfulness and your love. Today, gently, Holy Spirit, as we know you will, show us what our invitation is. If conviction is what we need, then convict us. Convict us of our lack of faithfulness. If comfort is what we need, then comfort us. If endurance is what we need, then give us the endurance to keep going. Speak to us now as we prepare for your table. Let's take three minutes to consider.
As we come to the table today, we will be partaking by intinction, which means that you will take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice, and consume both together. All of our communion is gluten-free for anyone uh, who needs that. This is available to everyone. Now, as we prepare for the table to respond to the invitation of Jesus, we remember that on the night Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. After giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat, do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the salvation of many. Every time you drink, do so in remembrance of me. You are now invited to the table to receive the body of Christ as the body of Christ in the world.